happy Wednesday, February 21st, everybody. It's a very happy Wednesday for me because tonight the Black Caps are taking on Australia in a T20 match at Wellington Sky Stadium. And at the very last minute, I got tickets to it and I am very much looking forward to it. Kia ora, this is Newsable, I'm Imogen and this is What's Worth Talking About. After a decade and a half in politics, Labour MP Grant Robertson is retiring next month. So what does that mean for his party? Why researchers are worried about feminist language being used to market health tests to women. It's nearly been 13 years since the devastating Christchurch earthquake that killed 185 We're taking a look at how the rebuild is going and why it's not yet complete. Plus, how one man managed to live in New York City rent-free because of an obscure housing law. All that's coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz slash support. After 15 years and widespread speculation, Labour MP Grant Robertson is hanging up his political boots, announcing he'll retire from Parliament at the end of next month. The former finance minister says he is sad about leaving the people, but he didn't have it in him to go much further. He says he gave everything to the job. Look, I think it's been clear for everybody that since the election I've been revisiting my future. Uh, 15 years is is a decent stretch here. Uh, I wanted to make sure I helped the Labour team get itself up and running. Uh, And then this opportunity came along. And I think everybody here knows about my connections with Otago and Dunedin and with the University of Otago. And once I started looking at that opportunity, that dictated the timing. Robertson says he is super excited to take up his new role as Otago University's Vice-Chancellor later this year. So what will his legacy be? His critics called him the worst finance minister the country's ever seen, but the people in his corner backed him all the way. I am happy to say for the first time this year. We're joined now by Stuff's political editor, Luke Malpass, to talk all things Grant Robertson. Luke, so happy to see you. And you. Luke, where does Grant Robertson's resignation leave the Labour Party? I think there's a degree to which Robertson in the last government really was, in some ways, the glue that held it all together. He had significant ministerial portfolios, but also he was really their, one of their key political architects deeply embedded in the patrimony of the Labour Party, but also kind of a long-standing political staffer and policy wonk. Do you reckon this could be the first of many retirements and resignations to come from the Labour Party? Or not as a result of him going. Look, when you are all of a sudden in opposition, and this is fundamentally different from 2017 with the National Party because they won the, the highest share of the votes, and prior to COVID, I mean, it looked like they were possibly going to get back in after one term. Labor has a massive amount of rebuilding to do. Most likely they're looking at six to nine years in opposition. I mean, not necessarily. You never know what happens in the next three years, but just on spec, you would think that would be the case. So you know, there's a, there'll be there'll be quite a few people around who, you know, get to the middle of this year and like, oh, can I really be bothered being in opposition, you know? And of course, you know, with time, perks of the job aren't the reason that anyone does it, but being an opposition MP in New Zealand, you don't get too many resources. You work your ass off, and <laughs> if your heart's not really in it, you're probably better to go do something else. Does Robertson's resignation weaken Chris Hipkins' support as leader at all? Do you think we're going to see a leadership challenge? Yes and no. <laughs> yes, in the sense that Grant had huge mana within the party. He was behind Chris Hipkins. He was also 
and authority in his own right within the party. So, you know, him being gone obviously is an important. Chris Hipkins' support of that is gone. But look, I mean, I just don't think there's any appetite in the Labour Party for leadership change. Now, you know, in 18 months, two years' time, Labour's polling the same, it will be quite a different story. Or or if Labour's party vote really starts to tank. But I mean, there's no one obvious in the wings. There's no one really agitating. To be honest, what it will come down to is Chris Hipkins talked about, you know, we're going to have a reset and a refresh and kind of rediscover what Labour in the 2020s is. It will more turn on where the party or where the caucus ends on some of those issues and what side of those Hipkins is on will, will, will determine some of the support. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with her, what can you tell us about Barbara Edmonds, the new Labour Party finance spokesperson taking over from Grant Robertson? Very impressive. She has got a very interesting CV. Her parents migrated from Samoa, I think, in the mid-70s. Ten years later, her dad was raising her and her three siblings kind of by himself. Um, on a benefit, I think. And she has ended up coming down to Wellington, working as a lawyer for the Inland Revenue Department, obviously went through university. Uh, she worked, I believe, as a private secretary for Judith Collins for a time. I do. I, that rings a bell. Yeah. And uh, then she worked, I think, for Stuart Nash uh, in the Labour Party, and she won the seat of mana after Chris Farfoy went on the list in 2020. Very warm person. Quite inexperienced, and it's a very tough time in the political cycle to be handed that job. It's kind of, you know, is this a plum posting or is it a shit sandwich? Hard to say. Well, especially going up against Nicola Willis. Going up against Nicola Willis, but I would be confident she would school herself up very quickly. She's also, interestingly, she is the first woman in Labour Party history to be finance spokesperson, obviously from Pacifica background, and she's also, incredibly, the mother of eight. Luke Malpass, Stuff's political editor, thank you so much for joining us. Great to chat. My pleasure. Well... The results are in, and thank you very much to everyone who got involved in our Instagram poll asking how much the Tooth Fairy should be giving out these days. And if you're wondering, Imogen, why did you ask people that? you got to give Tuesday's episode a listen because, boy, oh, boy, there are some extravagant Tooth Fairies out and about in that wild, wild world. But 84% of you said less than five bucks is a good amount for a tooth. 9% say the Tooth Fairy should give more than five bucks. 7% say the Tooth Fairy shouldn't give anyone anything at all. So there you have it. Once again, thank you very much for playing along. It's another banger to add to the Newsable Research Archives and to make sure you take part in our next piece of Newsable Science. Follow NZ Stuff on Insta. We're used to a whole range of medical self-testing being available today that in the past you would have needed to visit the doctor for. Think like pregnancy tests, for example. But the latest worry is that feminist messages around empowerment and women's rights are being co-opted to market all sorts of tests that might not be warranted. While some women might benefit in the right situation, there is a risk here of causing more harm than good through over-diagnosis and over treatment. Brooke Nicholl is a research fellow at the University of Sydney and joins us now. Welcome, Brooke. Just to be transparent, you do receive funding from the National Health and Medical Research Council as well, but welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. What sort of tests are we talking about here? So in the analysis piece that we published, we are really focused on tests that actually don't have good evidence to underpin them. They have either poor quality evidence to say that they're useful for the general population of women, 
or some evidence to say that they actually might cause more harm than good at this point. So in the analysis piece, we focused it on two more current examples, which one being the anti-malarian hormone test or the AMH test, sometimes also referred to as the egg timer test. And we also looked at breast density notification. So this is informing women that their breasts are, are dense as part of mammography screening. And what sort of language then is being used to encourage women to take these tests? Yeah, so I think the language that's being used is not new by any means. Mm. But what we found that over the past few decades, this language is actually being used more and more in the health space to market these type of tests, as I said, that aren't underpinned by good quality evidence. And these include different reproductive tests, different self-screening tests, but these companies are using language around empowerment and the right to know information. So things like women have the right to know, you know, women can handle the truth, knowing can, can make you in charge of your own fertility or your own wellness, and things that really place the onus on women to take these tests or treatment that are not well proven or could actually cause more harm than good, take them up and, and pay for them and then might have some downstream consequences. Are any of these types of tests useful for anyone? So the AMH test is an interesting example because what basically it is useful for is in a fertility clinic setting. So if women have infertility issues, it's a good kind of predictor and can give some more information to women in those settings. It's actually strongly recommended against not being used for women in the general population because it isn't an indicator in this group of women for um, their fertility. So, it, you know, it roughly gives you the amount of eggs mm. that you have left in your ovaries, but what it doesn't say is the quality of them. So it can be really misleading for women getting those results back and, and having to make decisions based on that, especially women who aren't in those fertility clinic settings. What are some of the downsides of deciding you'd like to take a self-test like this one? You talk about misleading, for example. You know, the misleading marketing using this kind of feminist rhetoric that encourages women with no signs or symptoms of infertility, for example, to seek AMH testing actually undermines empowerment because it can give you that information that isn't based on good quality evidence and could cause downstream uh, harms such as think you need to have babies earlier or you need to freeze your eggs earlier. Or, you know, there are case studies that, that we've highlighted in, in our previous work that have, you know, women have got these scores before and they've decided to try having babies earlier because they think they have eggs that are, you know, a decade beyond where their actual current mm. age is. And they fall pregnant straight away and they probably wouldn't have had a family that early. Lots of them can be psychological, but they can also be costly for people. And in terms of some of the other tests, they can actually be harmful in terms of giving diagnoses that won't be needed and having to get more testing or more treatment that could potentially be harmful. So in the case of the cancer kind of screening one, they might need to have further tests and treatments that actually do come with harms or side effects physically. Mm. Social media, of course, also plays a role in all of this. I swear every day, TikTok tells me I've got some new condition and then also suggest something for me to buy to solve it all. Brooke Nickel, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much. And if you do want to know more about all of this, Brooke and one of your colleagues have just published a paper in the British Medical Journal. How someone managed to live rent-free for five years in New York City is coming soon. I promise. I know we all want to know how we did it so that we too can do it. But remember, if you are enjoying what you're hearing, why not chuck us a like and a follow on your favourite podcast platform so that I can live rent-free in your ears? That sounded a lot less strange in my head.
It's almost the anniversary of the Christchurch earthquake that killed 185 people in 2011. The devastation in the city was overwhelming. But more than a decade on, a lot has changed, even if not everything has been repaired or rebuilt. So to talk about how far the city has come in recovering from that terrifying day, we're joined by Press Senior Reporter Liz McDonald. Liz, kia ora. Kia ora. Liz, do you mind sharing your memories of that day in Christchurch? Yes, I mean every February really brings up these memories because you get a you know a hot sunny Christchurch day and that were the conditions when the big earthquake hit in February 2011. I was at work in the press building. We'd had a quake several months beforehand, but this one was a direct hit on the city. So we I think we all knew pretty quickly that it was bad. Mm. Our parts of our building collapsed, as some people may know. Our beautiful old press house, which was in Cathedral Square. We managed to get out of the building. I managed to get out with some other colleagues down a back stairway. I left my bag, my phone, my everything, wallet, car keys, just got out of the building. Um, the tragic thing was that not all our staff did get out safely. One lady died on the top floor and there were some other catastrophic injuries up there. But, you know, 185 people, as you said, died in that quake. We got out into Cathedral Square and it was just shock shock at the state of our city. It must still feel so strange. Liz, how is the rebuild going in Christchurch? Well, Christchurch is looking fantastic at the moment, actually, Imogen. <laughs> you do say uh, so yourself. It, well, it does, <laughs> especially like this. You know, you get summer and the city's humming. There's a lot of tourists about. Cruise ship passengers are in town. We've just recently had the Buskers Festival, which you know mm. happens all over the, the the city. So it's feeling great. We've got a lot of shiny new buildings. We've got a very nice riverside precinct and all the um, you know paved walkways around the river and new plantings, new retail precinct. We've got the green zone, which was the red zone, where all those houses were evacuated from big space out in the eastern suburb of 600 hectares, which is going to be a long-term development project, but that's a lovely new open space for the city. We've got a lot of new housing, thousands and thousands of new houses. Townhouse construction is huge in Christchurch. Mostly it's turned into a beautiful city, and I think most of us are loving it. You do then get reminded when you walk past pieces of land that are still vacant weeds and sort of rubble and stones that not everything has been rebuilt, not everything is back. For those who haven't visited Christchurch or perhaps are just unaware, what and why is it proving difficult to have the whole rebuild completed 30 years on? Well, it's interesting. I think at the time, you know, people were saying three to five years and then five to seven years and then 10 years. And one of my colleagues said yesterday, well, probably 20 years is going to be more accurate. I think it's just the whole business of kickstarting a new city. A lot of buildings were rebuilt once people got their land sorted and their commercial landowners, I'm talking about, got things sorted. But for example, here at Press House, we have vacant sites on three sides of us, and they are all sites earmarked for hotels. They're owned by hotel companies, but they're waiting for the right time to build. So, for example, Tekaha, our beautiful new stadium, which is going up once that is opened uh, for things like big concerts and sports matches, that's going to bring a lot of people into the city. So those sort of things have to wait. Liz McDonald, Press Senior Reporter, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. You're welcome. Thank you, Imogen. 
Kia ora, Aotearoa, and welcome to the Big Stuff Quiz. I'm your host, Imogen Wells, alongside my assistant, the wonderful Chris Reid. Hello, everyone. Each week, we'll release a new episode to test your wits with two rounds of ten questions. One potluck round, and another that's very loosely themed. A bit tangential, even. Such a good word. If you think you're up for the challenge, go and follow our show on your favourite podcast platform, The Big Stuff Quiz, is out now. The Big Stuff Quiz is proudly brought to you by Melbourne. Every bit different. Okay, so the easiest way to dive into the story about the man who lived for free in New York City for five years is to read you the opening lines of this Associated Press article by reporter Seda Atanasio. It starts, For five years, a New York City man managed to live rent-free in a landmark Manhattan Hotel by exploiting an obscure local housing law. But prosecutors this week said Mickey Barretto went too far when he filed paperwork claiming ownership of the entire New Yorker hotel building and tried to charge another tenant rent. I do love that prosecutors use the phrase too far. I don't know why. That's funny. The, the, the filing ownership of the building was too far. Never mind the rent-free for five years. Anyway, here's how Barreto managed to do it, living rent-free in a New York icon of a hotel, by the way. The New Yorker is massive. There is a law that allows occupants of single rooms in buildings constructed before 1969, stick with me here, to demand a six-month lease from the building owner. Because Barreto had paid for one night in the hotel in 2018, one night stay. He says he counted as a tenant in this building that was built before 1969 and therefore asked for a six-month lease. The hotel, as you can imagine, kicked him out, so he took the hotel to court. He ended up winning eventually, essentially because the hotel owner's lawyers just didn't show up. So he managed to live rent-free, because the owners never wanted to then negotiate the terms of the six-month lease that he was then legally able to claim. But Barreto wasn't done and dusted. He wanted more than the free room. In 2019, he then created a fake deed showing that he was now the owner of the entire hotel's building. Adding this new and fake building owner status to his LinkedIn, always got to update it, and then he went about trying to get the hotel's bank to transfer all of its accounts to him, and then he tried to charge one of the other hotel tenants rent. This man is Delulu. He's delusional. He says when he was awarded the possession of his room, the judge indirectly then gave him the entire building because it hadn't been subdivided. And he doesn't believe he committed any fraud at all. He has now been arrested and charged uh, with filing false property records. I am adding this to my list of court cases to watch alongside the one in India about who really invented butter chicken 2024 and wacky court cases. It's a big year. That is Newsable for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Imogen Wells and I'm going to attempt to live my life with even just an ounce of the confidence that man has just without the illegal activity, I reckon. This pod took time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support.